John chapter 18, verse 1 to 27. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went into Jesus with the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. 
Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a cock began to crow. This is God's word. Good morning. My name's Phil. I'm the assistant minister here. It's lovely to have you with us, especially if you're here for the first time this morning. It would be weird to take our shoes off. It's not something you, you do really in London, but mentally, emotionally, this is holy ground we're standing on as we come to the, the road to Jerusalem and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is right that we should pray together. And we're quite a, an informal culture. We like to mock everything. We don't take anything too seriously these days. But here is something that deserves reverence. Here is something that deserves attention. And here is something that deserves sober judgment. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us the right hearts this morning, that we might hear your word, that we might see the seriousness of what happens here, so that through it we might know the immense joy of being those who are forgiven freely. Amen. Around the world, around 55.3 million people die every year. And each death impacts somebody profoundly. Every death impacts somebody. But some deaths have an impact that goes way beyond just the close family and friends. And who you are depends or rules, determines how much you feel that particular death. So the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand sparked the First World War. And it changed European history, world history in many ways. But I guess you don't really feel the impact of it unless you're a, a European historian, in which case it's, it's a death that has a direct impact on your day-to-day life. Uh, more profoundly, the death of Martin Luther King had a, a massive impact on the struggle for civil rights in America. And I guess if you're African-American in the United States, you feel that death and its impact much more profoundly than, uh, than a white Londoner will because it just it impacts you personally. The death of Jesus Christ over in Judea, Palestine, 2,000 years ago, that death affects every single human being in history, including you and me sitting here this morning. But the truth is, I guess many of us here have been Christians for a long time, have been coming to church for years and years and years. And it's very easy to see Jesus' death as something that I know is important, I sing about, I speak about, but doesn't really feel that important anymore. It, we sort of see Jesus as, it's like a, a course of antibiotics, life-saving antibiotics, that at some point in the past when we were desperately ill with this disease called sin and God's judgment, we took this course of antibiotics called Jesus and then we were saved and that's great. And for a while afterwards, six months, a year, we were hugely grateful, massively thankful for Jesus. But as time's gone by, you know, it's, we just, it was a long time ago. It doesn't really feel like it impacts our daily life. We don't feel driven to our knees to worship Jesus because it all feels a bit distant. And what we'll see today from John 18 is that Jesus' death is the salvation that everybody here needs. And that if you've been a Christian for 30 years, you need Jesus' death today every bit as much as somebody who's only heard about it for the first time 30 seconds ago. 
We'll also see that even if you've only heard about it for the first time 30 seconds ago, Jesus' death could today save you for all eternity. We remember in the Lord's Supper that Jesus' death is not given to us in a memorial as, we're not given a, a syringe to remind us of an inoculation that we had once. We're given daily bread. It's, we eat bread to remind us that this is our daily bread sustaining us through all of our lives. Jesus died to save us and everyone needs it every day of the week. Okay, let's just locate ourselves in John's gospel as we uh, turn to it for just these weeks leading up to Easter. Now, John uh, wrote his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus towards the end of the first century. So at the end of his life, probably uh, around 90 years old at this point, writing about what happened to him as a younger man with Jesus. Uh, And uh, he was Jesus' closest friend. He's referred to as uh, the disciple Jesus loved or as uh, the other disciple in this passage. And in many ways, this is the most intimate portrait we get of Jesus anywhere, this eyewitness account. And the first half of John's gospel is all about how Jesus is God's son come down to reveal God to us so that we might know what God is like. And then the second half is all about how Jesus returns to heaven to God the Father, but he returns through his death on the cross so that he might bring us back to God. He doesn't just come to tell us what God is like. He comes to bring us to God so that we might be children of the Father as he is the Son of the Father. So, John 18, look with me at verse one, page 1086. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. It's Passover time, Easter time in Jerusalem. And the arrival of devout pilgrims from all around the Mediterranean basin meant that the the population of Jerusalem would have swollen from perhaps 50,000 in normal time to as many as 200, 250,000 people. And it was a time of heightened religious fervor. Things could easily get a little bit out of hand. And so the Roman... the the Roman garrison, which was usually stationed up the the coast at Caesarea, would be brought down at this time of year. And there would always be a big detachment of soldiers just outside the temple compound uh, with easy access to the city in case things got out of hand. At this point, it's very late on Thursday evening. And earlier on, all across the city, the Passover lambs have been slaughtered. Now the Passover, the the killing of the Passover lambs, one lamb for each family, commemorated that 1500 years before in the book of Exodus, when God's people had been rescued in that book, how it happened was this, God acted in judgment. But he told his people, each family kill a lamb and in some symbolic way, the, the lamb dies in the place of the sinful family. The lamb takes God's judgment in their place. And they commemorate this every year, that the lamb meant that God's judgment passed over the people. And at this point on the Thursday, the lambs have been killed, the feast has been eaten, and people all over Jerusalem are settling into whatever the first century equivalent was of blockbuster movies and board games and family arguments, the things you do uh, on holiday. 
But not everybody, we read, is inside. There's a small group of 12 men, and they're picking their way up the steep hillside, the other side of the Kidron Valley, outside of Jerusalem, through the olive groves, towards a quiet garden where they've often been to pray. It's Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas. There's another group, some way behind them, heading for the same spot, a much larger, louder group. They've got torches and the clank of armor. It's a strange pairing. You've got the Roman soldiers and you've got the religious leaders. And in front of them all, there is a former disciple, Judas, the betrayer. Earlier on in chapter 13, which is early on the Thursday evening, John records Judas' decision finally to betray Jesus with these ominous words in John 13, 30. Judas went out and it was night. A symbolic phrase, a hugely freighted phrase for John. Jesus' enemies are now bearing down in the darkness on the one who is the light of the world, as we've heard in John 8. They have murderous intent in their hearts, and now is the hour when darkness will reign. Now is the time when God's purposes will look to fail, and the forces of evil will triumph. Well, so it seems, because from this point on, after verse 3, John presents a very different picture. Jesus is indeed arrested and tried and found guilty, and within 24 hours, he will be dead and buried. But actually, what we see presented here is the very opposite of a helpless victim of injustice. John presents Jesus as wholly in control of what's happening, as the one who is consciously moving step by step towards the death that was always going to be the climax of his mission, not a moment of weak failure. Why? Why did he die? Well, the language of this passage tells us he died to ensure no one would get lost and he could have a drink, which are slightly strange things for him to say. It sounds a bit trite, and we'll see what he means, and it is profoundly important for each of us this morning. Firstly, Jesus died so no one would get lost. So up to the end of verse 3, it looks like darkness is closing in and Jesus is about to be overtaken. But everything changes in verse 4 and we start to see Jesus is in control. He's not caught unawares. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out to the soldiers and asked them, who is it that you want? They don't capture him because he's sleeping and they just don't hear the soldiers approach. He's God. He knows all that is going to happen to him. He could easily have escaped if he'd wanted to. And he doesn't just know what's going to happen. He also takes the initiative. It's not like Saddam Hussein sort of dug out of a hole in Tikrit. He goes out to them. And do you notice too that he does almost all of the speaking in this section. There are only a couple of words spoken by other people. Jesus of Nazareth. That's basically all anybody else says. Everything else is spoken by Jesus. And look at the response when Jesus answers them. Uh, So verse four, uh, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. 
Now, we're not told why they respond the way they do. This is one guy just saying, yep, that's me. And yet, the word for detachment means over 100 Roman soldiers, probably closer to 200. 200 soldiers fall over. I mean, it's just odd. But I do wonder. We're not told, but I do wonder. Jesus has already revealed, clearly through John's gospel, that he's not just an ordinary human. He is a human, but he is also God in human flesh, fully human and fully divine. And that affirmation, I am he, is actually a direct quotation from the Old Testament. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses said, who are you? He said, I am. That was God's name. It's exactly the same words, actually, just in Greek here, I am. And I do wonder with, whether as he said those words, he allowed just a little bit of his divine voice to thunder through the human words. And they were rightly terrified. We see what his purpose is in all this, why he is taking control in verses eight to nine, and it is so that no one will get lost. That is, so that he can protect his disciples. Verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Ever since the beginning of John's gospel, it has been clear that Jesus would die. Almost the first thing that's said about Jesus by another human is John the Baptist's declaration in in chapter one, verse 29. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover lambs, those symbolic lambs that died for the people. Well, Jesus would be the true lamb, the one spoken of in Isaiah 53, which we read at the start of the service. But Jesus is not some weak, helpless, sacrificial victim subject to powerful forces way beyond his control. He's not just the slaughtered lamb. He's also the courageous shepherd. He says uh, so that his words would be fulfilled. Back in, he says a number of times through the gospel and most significantly in John 10, he makes three declarations. He says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he goes on to say, my people shall never perish. No one will take them out of my hand. He will hand himself over to be arrested, but not a finger will be laid on his people. It's just a little hint, just a little hint, even at this stage, that his death will somehow protect his people. But I hope you can see even at this point that here is a man you can trust with your life. If he is able to protect his disciples at this point, the little pathetic group of 11 of them, surrounded by up to 200 soldiers and religious leaders who want them just dead, and yet he is able to protect them. If he can protect his people at this point, He's able to keep you through everything you go through in life. All the ups and downs, the difficulties and dangers. Here is a man you can trust. He died so no one would get lost and none of his people will ever be lost. Secondly, he died to have a drink. Now, one of the disciples, Peter, has not got the message clearly. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus' response is immediate and very emphatic. Verse 11, 
Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus has never been defended by human swords. That is just not the Christian way. But his reasoning is bizarre. I mean, it sounds like something's gone wrong on the cut and paste. Put away your sword, Peter. I need to have a drink. What on earth has that got to do with anything? He's referring to a whole heap of Old Testament passages in the first half of the Bible where the prophets talked about a, a cup the Father gives as an image of judgment. You can look at it in uh, Psalm 75.8, Isaiah 51.17. You've got the references there. But let's read uh, Jeremiah 25.15. Jeremiah writes these words, The Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup is God's judgment. It's a cup the guilty must drink. God's judgment, God's punishment. It's a very odd thing though when you actually think about it. Peter, you must not fight to defend me. You must allow me to fulfill my destiny which is to be punished to death by my father whom I've served perfectly. I mean, why would Jesus be punished? You've got the one man in human history who never did any wrong. If you've, if you've ever read through one of the Gospels, if you haven't, then you should do. They've changed human history more than any other document. And you find at the center of them a man who is totally unlike anybody I've ever met. He manages to combine the virtues that we, we just never seem to be able to hold together. So he's utterly, unbendingly holy and obeys God no matter the cost in every circumstance. And yet he's really gentle with the filthiest of sinners. He's a devout Jew, sticks to the law and keeps himself ritually obedient in every aspect. And yet he welcomes non-Jewish people, Gentiles, into his kingdom. He draws enormous crowds with his healing and his teaching. But he doesn't change his message when the crowds dwindle away to nothing but a few dozen. He's also a man with the most serious mission in all of human history to save the world. And yet everybody wanted to invite him to parties. He was gentle and kind to the frail and weak. And yet he's hard as nails when it comes to confronting the brutal, wicked, corrupt, powerful authorities of the day. If any human in all history deserves God's welcome, God's commendation, God's affirmation, it's Jesus. And yet his mission, his goal is to, is to be judged, to drink the cup of God's wrath. That conundrum is explained in verse 14. Look, we'll pick it up at verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders it would be good if one man died for the people. Now back in John 11, the religious leaders have been debating what to do with Jesus. They're terrified all the people are turning to follow Jesus and that the current order was being upset and they're very terrified because the current order has them at the top. And people at the top are always worried when the order is being upset. And Caiaphas, the high priest, states rather bluntly in uh, John 11, You know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for his people than that the whole nation perish. 
Now, he's making basically a cynical political statement. It's better to kill Jesus than to risk the Romans thinking, look, things are going crazy, we'll take control, and we won't allow you a degree of your, just to sort of run Israel the way you want. It's a cynical political statement. But John observes he wrote much better than, or spoke much better than he knew. Without realizing it, he's actually prophesying what God is going to do. Jesus would indeed die for the nation, but not as a political sacrifice, but as a sacrifice for sin. He would would take the place of his people. He would take the cup of judgment that you and I deserve, and he would drink it to its dregs. He would absorb the wrath of God's punishment for us. A year ago, there was a terrorist attack in southern France, and the terrorist involved gunman ended up holed up in a supermarket in Treb and he had one female hostage at this point and quickly there was a cordon they sealed off the area there was no escape but there was this one female hostage caught in the supermarket with a gun to her head now the commander of the elite French anti-terror unit was Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram and he had all sorts of options available to him but he realized it would be very very difficult to go in there without the terrorists having the chance to kill the hostage first. And so what he did was took off his body armor, put down his guns, and he walked into the supermarket and said, you swap her for me. Let her go free and you can have me as your hostage. And he did and the terrorist killed him before being taken himself. What an absolute hero. A man with all the power And yet he stepped down from safety and security and he took the place of someone who should die and he died himself. It's just a picture of what Jesus does on the cross according to these verses in John. The only difference is he doesn't die for one innocent victim. Jesus dies for millions and millions and millions of guilty, undeserving sinners like me and like you. And so the pieces of the puzzle start coming together. Jesus will protect his people by being eternally lost for us so that we might be protected. Jesus will die so that he might drink the wrath of God in our place so that we might go free. The final piece of the puzzle comes together in the last verses and it really answers the question, why, well, why do we need someone to die for us? As we read, Jesus died because we all fail. Now the action in this last section is a sandwich. You've got Jesus' courage in the trial in the middle with Peter's denials either side of it. Peter denies, Jesus is faithful, Peter denies. That's how it works. We'll just look at uh, verses 15 to 17. Uh, We we looked at the rest of it on, on the way through as we read it. Jesus' trial, Peter's denial, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing there with them, warming himself. Now the other disciple is probably John. Uh, he knows the high priest's family, it seems, and so he's able to, to sort of sneak in, able to hide at the back while all eyes are on Jesus. 
and he's able to get Peter just into the courtyard. There's a whole heap that could and should be said about this section. But there is one simple thing that is the main point. And that is that while Jesus stands firm under pressure, Peter crumbles. You can't help but see the contrast. Jesus says, I am he, and Peter says, I am not. I am he, Jesus willingly owns, I am not. Peter denies. And John shows us this because John wants you and me to see why it is that we desperately need Jesus. You see, in the garden, Peter may have been a bit foolish, let's be honest, but he's undeniably brave. Perhaps as many as 200 Roman soldiers. He must have known it's a futile effort as he stands in front of Jesus and draws his sword. If you're going to get him, you've got to come through me. I mean, that is a brave man. He's got to know he's going to die. Just a short while later in the high priest's courtyard, one little question from a servant girl and he bottles it, crumbles. And eventually, he does exactly what Jesus predicted and three times he denies Jesus. Three times. At his best, Peter is willing to to face down an entire detachment of Roman soldiers to protect Jesus. The problem Peter has is he's not always at his best. At our best, most of us here scrub up pretty well. Now, I don't mean physically. I've seen some of you on your wedding days and it's remarkable how well some of us scrub up. But I mean our moral behavior. At our best, at our best, we can be forgiving to those who don't deserve it. At our best, we can be compassionate when we know we'll receive no thanks. At our best, We tell the truth, even though it's going to cost us dearly. All of us, if we're honest, could produce a highlights reel of our lives for Judgment Day that might look quite promising for God to look at. A sort of estate agent's description of our lives that accentuates the best and avoids photographing the less impressive rooms. The problem is that we're not always at our best. I'm not, and neither are you. And the problem is, God doesn't just see the highlights reel of our life. He doesn't just see us being brave in the garden. He also sees our cowardice in the courtyard. He sees everything, absolutely everything. He sees the moments we're ashamed of. He sees the times we've trampled over others to get what we want. He sees the greed. He sees the lies. He sees the lust. He sees the indifference to the needy. All of it. See, all of us have our courtyards in life, those places where, for all our strengths, we're at our worst and our weakest, where we fail. And that means all of us, every single one of us here this morning, needs Jesus, the one who has died in our place. We need to trust the one who has drunk the cup of judgment so that we might be forgiven. Maybe you've never done that. Perhaps you've been coming to church for a while, but you've never actually put your trust in Jesus. It's very easy to convince ourselves we don't really need to. We're not as bad as other people. And yet we remember here that God sees everything. Everything. No one else has died 
to take your sin. Jesus has. No one else can guarantee that they'll bring you home safely, but Jesus can. Put your trust in him and you are forgiven, even this morning. Those of us who have been trusting in Jesus for many years, though, can easily forget how much we need this forgiveness. We know the answers as we've asked them going through the passage. Why would Jesus be punished when he's innocent? Yep, I know, it's because he's dying for me. Why would Jesus take God's judgment? Yep, I know, it's because he's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. And we just don't feel the need that we one day did. We live differently from the way we used to. Uh, the way we live is quite different from, from lots of our colleagues and people that we know. And, and so we feel quite moral. And the truth is that although we sing the songs this morning and we rejoice that he will hold me fast, we rejoice that we have a saviour, we don't feel that great need to be forgiven. To put it in John 18 terms, we become aware of how often we are brave in the garden and we forget the courtyard moments And we may have our public behavior under control. We may have changed enormously, but the problem is God can see inside. He can see the cesspit of my heart. He can see the filthy thoughts about other people. He can see the self-righteousness. He can see the bitter resentment. See, God sees us at work, not just at church. He sees us at home and not just in public. He sees us behind closed doors. He sees the immense privileges and blessings many of us have had of of regular Bible teaching and encouraging Christian friends and he sees how little, how little we've changed. And we need to remember this morning that despite our nice Sunday best attire, our clean living and our middle class morals, it took the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to mend our relationship with God. The immensity of the solution points at the seriousness of the problem. And when we stop looking at the highlights real and look at the true state of our hearts, then we realize how wonderful it is that Jesus would come and drink the cup of judgment in my place. And that if he, if he holds me, I will not be lost. And so read the Bible deeply And pray every day as you read the Bible that the Spirit would expose the carefully hidden sins of our hearts. Because it's only as I see the darkness of my heart that I see how wonderful it is to have a saviour. See, the awesome truth of John 18, of the cross, is that you will never live a single day on earth so good you don't need God's forgiveness. None of us has ever lived a day so good that we had no need of God's forgiveness. But you'll never live a day so bad that his death is not enough to pay for your sins in full. Hallelujah, what a saviour we have. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that whether we hear these things for the first time or... We've heard them and known them and trusted them for years and years and years. Our need of the Savior remains the same. We pray that we would see that, that we would recognize and own that while we have our wonderful moments, all of us have our darkness. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus has died to pay for it all.
Help us to be honest about the true state of our hearts that we might be filled with joy and gratitude as we recognize that we have one who has forgiven us completely, who has taken our death, who has drunk your judgment, and who has given us life to the full. Amen.